my favorite things to do is to hear stories that are going on here at, uh, at Radius. You guys should celebrate as uh, you get to hear the McCutcheons talk about hanging out with kids. They, they, uh, we have, they're just a representative of a whole bunch of folks back there that are simply like grinding, right? Like every week showing up and teaching God's Word to our kids. That's the future. Our kids having the, God's Word in their heart and them taking us um, to, to the next generations. If you've been here for a while, when you walk out of our building, you see our mission statement on the wall. Hopefully you got it memorized by now, right? Like you got to have that down because I'll put you on the spot sometimes, stand you up in here and make, never mind. No, I would never do that. But our mission statement is fairly simple. Radius Church exists to glorify God. We always pause for a minute there. By making disciples, planting churches, and living generously. And this week I got to see all of those things. It's, it's fun. I got to sit with the Radius staff the Lexington staff this week, and they just went around the table telling stories of making disciples. Just different people that they were investing in. Uh, many of them are being invested in by other people. It's, it's what we do here. We, we believe in the Waffle House encounter, right? Like, like over some hash browns, hanging out, talking about God's word with somebody else. I've seen uh, different groups of y'all at different places over the course of the week, hanging out, talking about God, talking about your, your life, your family. It's, just, it's what we do. We're just kind of grinding. Making disciples to glorify God. We're planting churches. We're dreaming a little bit about Pillion right now. We actually have a leader looking toward Pillion. So if you know somebody in Pillion, we're, we're starting to try to put together a little core group from Pillion, and we're, we're praying about Newberry, two different spots that we're hoping to plant a church here in the new future, near future. That is who Radius has been. We, we like to get one thing going, and as our room fills up, we like to send folks somewhere else to represent Jesus in another community in a healthy way. And then this week, one of the really fun things I wanted y'all to hear about, and one of the reasons I want to say this is living generously right out there in that lobby. We set up about six round tables and had 30-plus administrators from Lexington One sit out there. We fed them out ideas, which got everybody to show up, which is great. We got to tell them a little bit about how we want to take our resources and get them to families in their, in their situations that have needs. So really fun to sit with them and hear their passion for that. So thank you for those of y'all that, that gave to give hope. They were excited to see Jacob right here. Jacob was here. Uh, they're excited to be able to do that. So that, that's what we're about here at Radius. That little sign on the way out, that, that's who we want to be. But the thing we want to be about is to glorify God. We, we want for ourselves, for he doesn't need us, but he seems, I, I don't fully understand it's above me to have joy when we glorify him. You can't add to his glory. He's all glorious. But you can show his glory. And so we at Radius, we want to do that. We have those three ways that we like to do it. We also like to do it here when we sing together, to give him glory, to worship. I uh, come this morning a bit troubled. I have an interesting passage that I should teach as we go through this series, and yet... Nationally, people are talking about glorifying God right now. I don't know if you've looked in your news feed, but some of y'all probably work enough to have not paid attention or seen, but there's stories popping up all over our country, particularly on college campuses, of students rallying together and just worshiping God. Um, the most prominent one is at a school called Asbury in uh, Kentucky. If you haven't heard about it, uh, it's been a couple weeks now. They have started worshiping and kept worshiping. The word revival gets thrown around. 
Now, for some of y'all that grew up in the South, you got a picture of your, what you think a revival is. That's when the Baptist church down the street says there's going to be a revival. And it's every night, and some dude yells about rock music, right? That's what I remember. That's what I remember about revival. We all, if you're charismatic, folks, you, you got some pretty interesting pictures in your mind when you hear revival. You're like, somebody's about to flip out in this place, right? Like, it's going to get crazy. We all, we all have our pictures in our head about what revival is. And what's really interesting about this is it doesn't seem to meet any of those qualifications. It just seems like potentially God is pouring out his spirit. And we like to put words and define stuff, whether that's an awakening or a revival or whatever. What seems to be happening is that God is pouring out his spirit, which he does at his pleasure. Um, I have been moved by it troubled by it, but responsible for it. And so I come before you this morning kind of trying to figure out what to say. My, my, my normal is to go to Lizard's Thicket on Sunday morning. Don't come sit with me. I'm focused on Sunday morning, all right? Like on Sunday, you come sit with me any other time, not Sunday morning. It's usually 6 a.m. anyway. And um, I, I get together my notes and kind of go back through them and, and get ready. All the waitresses know I'm not going to pay attention to them because like, I'm kind of staring into oblivion. This morning when I got to the checkout counter, um, one of the ladies there that I know fairly well, she knows Jesus, she goes, I thought about driving to Asbury this week. Just moved me when she said that. She said, I couldn't get enough time. It's five and a half hours there, and I thought maybe I could stay two hours and drive back before my next shift at Lizard's right down the road. And then she said this, it weighed heavy on me, I'm going to let it weigh heavy on you. Maybe we could get one of those here. And then she looked at me and kind of winked and said, hint, hint. <laughs> so what I like to do this morning is I, I got a note, or I don't know what it is, it's something that... Uh, my son, who drove to visit Asbury, wrote after he visited. And it just kind of explains, for some of you that haven't even heard what's going on at this little college in Kentucky that nobody's really ever heard of, um, it, it'll give you some clarity on what it is. But as I read it, it moved me, and I hope that it moves you, and then I'll read my text. I'm going to have Cheryl come read it because I can't read. Anything over like three sentences gets a little laborious because I stammer and stutter. So I'm going to let the one who contributed the reading DNA uh, read this. It's a little long, so bear with me. A few weeks ago, I began voicing my doubts whether my generation could ever wake up from our slumber. I thought revival might be impossible for us. We are engrossed in screens, we are perpetually distracted, we have so little depth, we consume information by the truckload, we have no room for the unseen. My mind has since changed. On Monday, February 13th, feeling prompted, several friends and I decided we were going to Asbury University. The world was saying revival was breaking out and we were eager to see what that meant. 
We left immediately, piling into my little Honda Civic, CC is her name, and leaving Wheaton College, having zero plan for how long we were going to stay or where we would stay or what we were doing. It was just time to go. So we went. When we arrived, I remember being seriously underwhelmed. It was 11 p.m. when we walked into Hughes Auditorium, the place where it had been happening, except it wasn't anything miraculous in the sense I thought it would be. 70-year-old gray-haired men were sitting quietly with their wives. Mothers with babies were standing and swaying. High school students were goofing off in the front row. A trio of elementary school boys sat silently as their parents worshipped wildly. College students waved their arms in the air like college students do. The room was not even halfway full. And I didn't really feel anything. Someone in our crew found a friend who had some beds in the area, and we left at 1.30 a.m. to snag a few hours of sleep before Tuesday. When we awoke, we found that our gracious hosts left out some food for the starving college students to wolf down for breakfast, and we were out the door, back to Hughes Auditorium, still unsure of what to expect. Little did I know that Tuesday and Wednesday would be the two craziest days of my life en route to the most intense and chaotic and joyful week in my short 22 years. I won't tell you all that had happened. What is, take, is taking place has been personally, deeply personal, and it is for me to ponder in my heart for days and weeks and years ahead. But I will tell you this. It is real. He is real. The power of the Holy Spirit is real. It's funny, the humanity of it all. When I think of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I don't think of a room where some are worshiping, some are conversing, some are checking Instagram, some are zealously live streaming, some are seeking the bizarre, some are active skeptics, and some are literally exhausted and passed out in the side aisle. I don't think of low quality audio and music production. I don't think of simple, faithful, and uncharismatic preachers. I don't think of old wooden folding chairs ironed into a long cement slab divided into three sections by a few strips of outdated carpet. I don't think of the fact that the whole testimony time I was praising God, but also concentrated on how badly I needed to pee. I don't think of thick, sweet, Kentucky Southern accent drawing out vowel sounds in passages of Scripture. I don't think of Ken, the 60-year-old man who came alone because he didn't have anyone to drive with him, but he wanted to travel all the way to Asbury to worship since his son had just recently come back to Jesus. I don't think of Mary, a freshman at Asbury, who was one of 20-some others who stayed after chapel and sang, and they're still singing almost two weeks later. I don't think of Mike and Mindy, the couple who sat in the front row wearing matching radiant smiles until 3 a.m. They had flown up from Texas to come and join in the song. I don't think of Katie, who just so happened to be in the area because of a terrible family emergency and suddenly found herself as a behind-the-scenes leader and champion of prayer. I don't think of Mike, the Birmingham middle-aged man who grabbed my shoulder suddenly and said, I've never done this before, but I need to pray over you. I don't even think of myself, a notoriously nerdy student who doesn't stay up past midnight, skipping days of classes and pulling all-nighters because of something that is happening. 
I would never think that 90% of our time spent there would be filled with unstructured, impromptu worship sets, often led by people who were simply in the room at the right time. We just sang, not particularly well or impressively or even loudly, although it does get loud, but we sang with truth, spilling off our unclean, yet now cleaned lips, saying the name of Jesus until the words were absorbed into the chocolate wooden beams and painted on the cream-colored ceiling above the balconies. Eloquence was not our mission. Desperation was. Joyful desperation and acceptance of truth. So many are asking, challenging, demanding a definition for the word revival. Do we see true repentance? Are hearts really changing long-term? Is this more than an emotional worship experience? To anyone who's asking those questions, you are missing it. Do you not see? Can you not hear? Are you blind and deaf? Dozens of campuses across the country are rapturously singing out the name of Jesus Christ, the doings of the Almighty God, claiming the power of the King of glory. They are singing and dancing and shouting and jumping. Why would they not? Wouldn't you do the same? Wouldn't you be just as loud if you each knew each word of truth was an arrow piercing the fortress of the enemy on your campus, in your home, in your church, at your workplace? My generation, infamously understood as the post-truth generation, is shouting truths of blinding light into the darkness. My generation, which drowns in comfort and distraction, is giving up long hours daily to spend time singing the same thing over and over and over and over again. My generation, the loneliest generation ever, is creating communities of unspeakable depth while praying for things they've never prayed for before, encouraging others to press on toward the true friend. My generation, plagued by anxiety, is dancing and saying that the Lord is sovereign and holds everything in his hands. Do not allow the air of the age, this oppressive, crippling, choking cynicism to attack you now. Do not be Pharaoh, who after three powerful moments of God, then five, then eight, then ten, still hardened his heart. How many campuses will it take before we get on our knees and sing to the king? Ten, twenty, two hundred? Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95, 7 and 8. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3, 15. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 4, 7. There are times when we fall to our knees because the feeling of God is overwhelming. And there are times when we fall to our knees because God is God. God is demanding that we find a bigger version of him, that he is far bigger than the unprecedented technological advancements of the last decade. In fact, he can even take them and wield them for his own purpose. He is communicating that the simple confession and song that he is God can overwhelm this nation. He's answering all the prayers the faithful have been praying. If you don't know, 
the movement of the Spirit at Asbury started when 25 students stayed after a Wednesday chapel. When everybody else picked up their bags, put on their jackets, pulled out their phones, just a few people remained and continued worshiping. Then they started praying with and over each other. Then they started texting other people to come and join them. Then those people started texting other people. Then they didn't stop for a week straight. 25 students. As we consider this, we recognize that God is not large now that Asbury has thousands upon thousands flocking through little Wilmore, Kentucky. As Tozer said, a gathering is not big because a lot of people are present. It is big because a big God is present. It is not time to go to Asbury. It is time to go to your home, to your neighbors, to your church, to your campus, and to start singing. Sing harmonies to the chorus that is ever always rising in the heavens. Sing piercing arrows of truth into the darkness of your lives, your people, your place. Sing because the same God of Moses and Elijah and Paul and Jesus Christ the King is pleased to dwell in you. Sing now. Father, we, we hear those words. Don't know exactly what to do with them. I hear the word revival, something that I've read about. An awakening, as the historians chronicle at least two in our country, throughout our history. But we sit here, we certainly feel like our country needs an awakening. But I would imagine if most in this room, like me, question whether I, I want an awakening. At least to the point of what it would require of me and us. So I want to hold my hands open to you, Lord, and allow you to examine my, my heart and tell me the truth about me. I also want to get over myself so that I could worship you. Lord, our church needs that. We need that. The church needs that. Our, our town here needs that. We recognize that... Uh, Father, you pour out your spirit as you will. And so right now we celebrate what's happening on numerous colleges, campuses across our, our country. And we pray that it continues to your glory, to the benefit of your people, to the benefit of folks watching that you've yet to meet you. What do you want us to do? How do you want us to respond? been asking you all week, Lord, how do you want me to respond? So again, we say, 
those of us that know you in the room, best we know how, Lord, we, are, we open our hands and trust you with our stuff and with our heart, with our thoughts. It seems odd to give you permission. You do as you please, but we, we, we want you to create clean hearts in us. They'll meet us in these minutes that we have together this morning, but meet us as we leave and, and carry on our lives in our different homes and different jobs and hobbies and schools. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new, generally on Sundays we, we sing some, and, and uh, we don't want it to be just singing. We'd like for it to be worship. For some of us, that takes us a song or two to slow down our lives and begin to focus on the words, and then some of us can sing and some of us can't. You might be sitting in front of somebody who can't, I'm sorry, like, but, but we'd like for them to attempt. We want to sing together. There's something special about doing it together. We want to worship God. And then, then we, we often look at God's word. That's, that's, it's, it's real simple what we do is we look at God's word and we hope that it studies us. We don't really believe that we can conquer it. It's powerful. We hope that it conquers us. So I want to do that again this morning. I had a passage that I prepared. It's in, in our series. If you haven't been with us, we, we're calling it the Red Letter Podcast, another name for the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, a series of teachings by Jesus where he's sitting on a mountain and he's teaching the people in front of him and he does it in little sections so we broke it into little sections and we called this morning real hitched which is the fourth of the series I just want to read the passage and make a few comments and as I've read the passage in lieu of what's going on on college campuses across our country I hope to connect the two for us as we uh, spend a few more minutes together here's the passage Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, you've heard the, what the law says, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. But Jesus makes these two pretty big statements. The second statement deals a ton with truth. And some of y'all that have your hair dyed, you're like, you got some questions. I understand. Like, like, well, I, I, he's, he makes this pretty simple statement that I think is revolutionary for a country like, that, that we just simply are used to dealing in lies. Just normal for us. We just passed Valentine's Day. Hopefully all the men in the room, husbands, boyfriends, you watched at least one Hallmark movie just to validate that it was Valentine's Day. And like the whole thing on Hallmark is 45 minutes in, there's a lie that has been told or, or undefined, and it's eventually going to come 
uh, you know, like with 10 minutes left, it's going to hit the fan. Whatever it is, it's going to hit the fan, and then there's going to be like this redemption that happens because the lie hit the fan. You know what I'm talking about. It seems like our whole world in the United States, like it, we celebrate the holding back of truth so that we have to say phrases like, I'm going to be honest right now. And Jesus is saying, that's a terrible way to live. If you always got to say, I'm going to be honest right now, that assumes the rest of the time it's questionable whether you're going to be honest or not. Anytime you start a statement with, I'm going to be honest right now, I actually kind of think you're lying because you tried to convince me that you're going to be honest right now. There's no freedom in that. There's no, there's no flourishing in that. So Jesus is laying out these statements, and they're simple, but he, he's, he's really trying to take us back to creation and show us how to flourish as men and women on the planet that he created. And so, secondly, in the passage, he actually frees us from the need to lie. He's saying, just, just tell the truth, and there'll be freedom. He also frees us from the attempts to prove that we're not lying. If you wanted to be a church that stood out in Lexington, we just wouldn't lie for a week. And we'd be really, really different. We took all the exaggeration out, all, all the stuff that becomes so much a part of us, just simply not lying. Guess what else would happen? We would be happier. So much rest when we just deal in truth. Jesus says, I am the truth, speaking of himself. And inside that truth, there's all this freedom. So when we hold our hands up and we say, Jesus, you are the truth. I don't know if you've seen any of the worship services going on all around the country, but the kids, a lot of them, their hands are in the air. It just, it's, a, it's kind of a position outside of being on your knees of humility. You're exposed. I don't like doing it. I don't like putting my hands up in the air. It feels like I'm, like I'm, I'm under arrest or something. Like you can take advantage, but I can't do anything. I'm frozen. But they're putting their hands up and they're saying, He's saying about Jesus, you are the truth. So to match that, then your hands come down low and you, you examine yourself. And, and you ask this question, am I the truth? Am I acting in truth? Because if I'm not, then because he's the truth, it pushes me to want to repent of the fact that I'm not the truth. So Jesus lays these simple statements out because he's trying to get our attention. And man, if that one doesn't get everybody's attention in the room, I don't know what would. And he's asking you this morning, would you worship him as the truth? The one who's never changed, the one who's never told a lie, who's been completely consistent, cannot be moved. Would you worship him and then repent of who you are? Because if, if you know who he is, it makes you look in the mirror at who you are. And there's freedom by simply stating who you are and asking, you, asking him to help you be a person of truth. You probably caught it, if it's personal to you, in the first section of this passage. You probably heard the D word, divorce. Jesus drops it in there a couple times, and if you've walked through a divorce, you probably cringed a little bit because you're at church, and it's going to be a time of shame for me. If you're a child of divorced parents, there's probably a little twinge of pain when that word pops up. Why does Jesus drop it right here in the Sermon on the Mount? A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. If you knew a little bit about the culture of the day, it's very religious folks. 
that he's speaking to. They knew the Old Testament well. They kind of found this loophole that they were abusing to break up their marriages. Primarily the men were abusing the loophole. And Jesus um, addresses it straightforward. Just, just saying that word, I, I call it the D word because, it's because of the pain connected to it. I do not want to just fly over it and not acknowledge what's going on in the room. At least 50% of our room is touching that one way or another, right? I remember 10 years into marriage, pretty frustrated with Cheryl, and that word came out of my mouth, not to her, but to a friend. And it felt as bad as any word that's ever left my tongue. And some of you have walked through it, and you know how the actual separation of a marriage goes, and you know how difficult and painful that is. So when, you, when that word hits, everybody, if you, if you haven't tasted it, then, then you know folks in our room have tasted it. And one of my best friends, his mom and dad got divorced uh, when he was in middle school. And it was so traumatic for him. Like we, we were talking about it in college. He cannot remember a single day of middle school because it was, he was just so broken that this thing that he trusted so deeply um, had come apart. And so when that word hits, let me, let me just acknowledge that there's pain and shame in the room. Jesus is not. That's, that's not his focus in this passage. But he is very directly holding marriage high. He's stating um, in no um, uncertain terms that he created marriage, and he's holding it high. This is what I made. When you break it, I'm disappointed, and you should repent. He would probably point back to Genesis chapter 2. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife, and the two are united into one. Like it was this by his design. God in his infinite wisdom created this thing where a man and a woman would put their lives together for their entire lives, all the way to death. That was the expectation. That's how it was supposed to go. That was his design. Because he designed it, he has the right to define how it goes. In this day, when Jesus is telling this story, sitting on a mount with these people, many of the ladies there have been handed a certificate of divorce. Their husband wanted something else. Mostly, it seems, as I read the co- in context, they've been handed that because they burnt the toast or for some insignificant reason. And Jesus is just saying, this is jacked up in every way. And so he's calling it what it is. Would you say that that's true of our culture as well? That the definition of marriage, like as Jesus created, has been assaulted in so many ways. <laughs> we could make a list and it would not just include divorce, right? It would it'd be this long list where we devalued his creation just like we de- devalued ourselves made in his own image. And Jesus, as he writes this passage, I mean, we can, I can give you some stuff to read if you want to get into the detail of it. I don't have time. He's raising marriage up high in hopes that you and I will be moved to repentance. 
He wants us moved to humility. He stated, I made it like this so that you could flourish. It was the best design. It's my design. It's how it should work. But in a room like this, does it not like awaken us whether you've been married 33 years in my case or whether you've had multiple divorces? There should be this moment when you read this passage that it moves you to repentance. His great creation, the way it's supposed to be, we've been together 33 years. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's not how it was supposed to be because we're both sinners. So on a regular basis, we have to look in the mirror. It refines us. There's a beauty in staying through it all. But it refines us because of our brokenness. Jesus, again, as he does throughout this whole passage, drives us to glorify his Father above getting in the weeds with our own stuff. Malachi addresses it in the Old Testament. He actually says that God hates divorce. That's tough, isn't it? Listen to it in context. Malachi chapter 2. Here's another thing you do. God pointing at the people of Israel. You cover the Lord's altar with your tears, weeping, and groanings because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows that you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows, didn't the Lord make you, you one with your wife in body and spirit? You are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to, your, to the wife of your youth. For God, for it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. What's he saying? <laughs> Malachi, the prophet, is furious about their lack of worship. He's saying, oh, you're doing all the right things. You show up at church. You sing loud. In their case, they actually cry on the altar. You got lots of flowery words, but you don't love your wife. You left your wife. Maybe that's why revivals happen on college campuses. Nobody's married, right? Like, like, like. First Peter, if you think it's just an Old Testament one, this, this one has just beat my tail at times in my married life. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are but she's your equal partner in God's gift of new life. And then this last line, treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. About that. He actually connects my marriage to my prayer life. Sounds like there ain't going to be no revival in Lexington unless dudes treat your wives right. Seems almost impossible because he's not hearing us, not listening to our prayers because we're not worshiping with our lives, with our hands and our feet. Words don't mean a lot. You all probably at some point have called somebody a hypocrite or been called a hypocrite. Like, like these two things don't match. Well, I'm going to be straight with you. This room is full of hypocrites. There's not a seat in here that doesn't have one in it. Because it's impossible to get our lives to align with a holy God. So what happens is when we worship him and we call him what he is, it moves us to repentance. 
We say who he is, and then we come down to look at who we are. It's the way it's supposed to work. And when we look at who we are, it makes him seem even greater. We'll put our hands up higher and back down. Like it's this movement up and down of worship and repentance, worship and repentance. So as he addresses marriage, there's almost no other, other place in our culture, certainly in the suburbs, that would move us to more repentance. Whether, whether you be married for 33 years or divorced or single, have you put something in God's place? Have you put yourself in God's place? It's the time to repent. Cheryl and I got away for a couple days, which is good for us. And uh, I read a chapter in a book by A.W. Tozer about God's immutability. So you want a fancy word to take to work tomorrow? Break it out. It means God can't change. He doesn't ever move from better to worse. He never moves from worse to better. He's the same. Never changes. He's never not composed. He's always together. All of his attributes are together, but he's never shaken. Nothing ever happens on this earth that shocks him or in this universe that shocks him. He's completely unchangeable, which ought to make us worship him because we are a people of chaos. All you got to do is look at the marriages in this room, and you'll see some chaos. Ain't no telling what emotion Cheryl's going to exude this afternoon. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. And that emotion is going to expose some sort of insecurity in me. And so then there's going to be chaos in my house, potentially, this afternoon. Let's pass if, we don't, if you don't mind. But like, like, there's going to be chaos in, this, in my house this afternoon, but God's not going to change. He's going to be steady and stable and the same. Our chaos actually shows his immutability, that he doesn't change. Malachi, just a little bit later in the book of Malachi, God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you, descendants of Jacob, are not already destroyed. It's good news that he doesn't change. He made us a promise. And he doesn't go back from his promises. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. A great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, writes it like this. In all things, as they change, proclaim the Lord eternally the same. As this room changes over and over, it proclaims that he doesn't change. A.W. Tozer in the chapter that I was reading, I just one little quick quote. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods where he will See no one. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creation, cre creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly how he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. He's the same. That'll make us worship. You can't move him. Who do you know like that? Immovable, consistent, and true. So we, the people of chaos, we come together and we celebrate the fact that he changed us. So he doesn't change. He's immutable. But he opened up a way for us to change out of our chaos. He's righteous, cannot be changed. And he made a way for me to be righteous by the death of his son on the cross. And guess what's true about me now? You can't change me. I'm righteous. You can't change me. 
I've been made righteous by that because I've been imparted his righteousness. It's not my righteousness, his righteousness. So his immutability, this massive word that says he can't change, he took his righteousness and gave it to me, and nobody can take it away from me, even though I sinned this week. His righteousness has changed me to be like him. That blesses my marriage. We're on a little retreat. I'm reading about God's immutability of all things. And as I begin to lift him up and recognize who he is, it helps me look at me and it protects my marriage. When I hold his design high, it makes me understand how broken I am, which helps me worship him. It's what revival is. It's people who worshiping God and then breaking down and repenting of their sin. And then as they get to the end of their sin, it reminds them how great God is. And as they get to the end of how great God is, but you can't really get there, it reminds them of how broken they are. And then there's just this celebration that he wants to know us. And it makes us want to worship. And the kids at Asbury still are. The kids over there at... Uh, uh, Clemson, I've heard, have been getting up at 6 a.m. for three weeks straight in a little prayer meeting of 150 kids. They get up and pray over and over. There's a school over in Birmingham called Samford. They've got this nonstop worship service. It's just going on and on and on. It's, there's one at the University of Arkansas. They're popping up all over our country. Praise God. Pray that he continues. Could he do that with people in the suburbs? Would we let him? Perhaps right now as we, we sing a couple songs, we ought to let him look at our marriages. The one you're in now, for some of y'all, the one in the past. For some, the one you dream about in the future. And you just hold it out there and let him look at it. And perhaps the one that was your first one, you look back and you repent for maybe what went wrong there. Perhaps this is your first one and you know what's wrong there. And you repent. Perhaps you're single and this thing so dominates your mind that you just need to get it off of you and go, God, I'm sorry I think about this more than I think about you. And we all agree. We all agree that something is in those open hands. Because <laughs> nobody in this room is without sin. And as we look at ourselves, it makes us Lift our hands high. Or you can start here if you want. We're going to sing this song. You can start here with your hands high. Believe me, I'm not going to have my way up in the air. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're uncomfortable with that too. But, but, but at least in your heart, like your hands got to be high. And as, as God, you interact with him, it ought to move you back here. The early church, Paul wrote them a little letter about this meal. He said, hey, don't be taking my bread and juice without being here first. Like, I want you to worship me. He asked us to do this until he returns, but I want you to, don't, don't make light of the sacrifice I made so that you could be called righteous. Don't come up here and screw around with it and act like your wheat doesn't impact that. Don't start acting like, you know what I'm saying? And deal with ourselves before we come. And then it's this beautiful time. Who knows what the Lord will do with Radius Church as this thing is happening in our country 
It'll come down to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Does he want to pour himself out in some kind of beyond normal way that we've seen? It'll come down to us. Whether we'll humble ourselves and repent and worship. They both take deep humility. Let me pray. Father, it's an honor to look out and see faces that I know want to see your spirit poured out on us and on our town. Work on us, please. You know us. There are times when we'd much rather do what we want to do than uh, even be here on a Sunday. Times where uh, we have this thought pop in our mind of setting a little time aside to speak to you, and it's difficult for us to get there. We're sorry, Lord. You know us, Lord. We like everything to be under control for things to end on time. And let's get to where we got to be. I guess that's all bad, Lord. We never want to miss when you're directing us to something. So move on us, Lord. Move on us in our homes, on our jobs, in our day-to-day. We seems pretty lame to ask you to help us worship you. But even now in this room, as we sit here and we attempt to sing these songs together, would you move on us and help us worship you? Help us see who you really are. We trust you as we try. In Jesus' name, amen.